pretty easy statement, but the last three years have really changed very much the way we live, hasn't it? This pandemic has kind of accelerated the change that uh, we were on the cusp of having. Every aspect of our life has been modified, where we work, how we shop, how we go to church even. Again, for the last five to ten years, this wave of technology, this digital age has been sitting there poised to change so many aspects of our life. And then when COVID hit, all of a sudden this change just happened so quickly. Maybe we're not fully cognizant of all of the realities that it's going to bring, but it certainly accelerated that change, hasn't it? Just take, for example, video conferencing. It, it's been available even through the digital means, you know, a couple years before, before this, but it wasn't really used by the average person, was it? Maybe a few big companies trying to connect around the world, but you still had your conference rooms, and you still got together as people, you still worked out things. But education, medicine, you name it, it it's changed. And, and we're going to see more changes as we come out of this the convenience of our shopping. How many people still go shopping on a weekly basis or you just go onto Amazon and you put your list in because, you know, they don't charge you anymore, right? And it comes straight to your door. What a wonderful convenience that is. You know that you can actually go to a store now. You can go to a car dealer, put on a, v uh, a VR system, a virtual reality, and you can actually build your car by color, by contrasts, and you can see the end product. The same thing with your home. You want a home renovation, I heard a couple weeks ago, a Canadian company that I knew the technology existed in Australia, but you can actually sit down with the, the VR goggles on and ask for the changes in color, in furniture, in taps, in whatever, and it'll come up and you can actually visualize, you can see what the end product's going to be like. Now, those are examples of how things are already changing. But you know what? There are secondary things that we may not yet think about. How many businesses are allowing people to work from home? Even as we come out of the pandemic, there are some that will say, we're never going back again. Well, there's going to be a ripple effect. Think about it. Think about the real estate development. You know, all of these areas that have been designated industrial because we needed a fixed place to work it's going to change real estate. It's going to change the way cities are planned in the future. So there's other consequences that are coming out of this. So here's the reality. As we come out of this pandemic, we're still dealing with some things, but as we come, doubt, come out of this, it'll be interesting to see how as a society we keep adjusting to these other changes that are coming, which things we're going to continue to embrace because it just makes life so much easier. What's on the horizon? Uh, maybe there's some tech guys out there, some gals who say, you know, this is right there. You may not be quite aware of it yet, but it's coming. It'll change the way we live. Now, as a church, we've not been immune to all this, right? In fact, Simply because of sheer necessity, we've had to embrace things that we wouldn't have considered before. And we have maintained a minimum level of community and ministry, even when physically we weren't able to come together. So we've embraced this technology. 
I think we understand, or I hope we understand, more than a large part of our society, how important it is for us to actually be together. Because things like Zoom, they can never replace in-person worship, in-person gathering. There's something important, something essential, I think we all understand. And I hope that we're yearning for more and more. But you know what? I'm afraid of a small group of Christians who have embraced the technology, who may never come back for whatever reasons, or never fully engage with a local body. Just like working remotely, shopping remotely, education remotely, it's very easy to stay at home and go to the church of the easy chair. Just to curl up in your pajamas, put a comforter on, and to take what you need. Because that allows us to be able to take, to, to hear sermons, to engage in music, to pray. And it, it, you know, we don't have any of the muss and fuss of getting our kids ready for church. We don't have to worry about coming downtown and, and parking, ending at 1 o'clock, and, and going out there and trying to move the car to, so we can have lunch with people. There's all kinds of things that life is just made much easier if we don't actually physically have to come to church. I mean, all, there were already a bunch of us, myself included, we love listening to other preachers and other services during the week. It's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, just think. The kids who just left, some of them do not know church outside of Zoom. Their CE, their world is still in that little bubble. And I praise family, it's wonderful to have you all come back. I, it's great. But the reality is, is that there's this young group of people who this is typical church. They've never known coming together and really participating as we did three years ago. As we come out of the pandemic, it's time to reconsider what is the purpose of the church? Why do we gather as a local family of God? Well, we could start by saying uh, the church is God's chosen means to make disciples of all nations. We could say that the church is the place where we find community, where we find fellowship. Well, we could say that this is where worship comes to its greatest height of glory to God. As the people of God come together, the purpose of the church is worship. And all of those would be true. But Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 tells us this, there's something else there. There's another perspective. And that is this. The purpose of the local church and why we gather is to incite Christ-like love and servanthood among one another. Bam. It, it's kind of a, a part of the discipleship issue, but focusing in very specifically, the purpose of the local church and why we gather is to incite Christ-like love and servanthood amongst one another. Now, if we are able to put it into the context of verses 19 and forward, because this is one pericope, one thought that, that the preacher in Hebrews is trying to get across to us, we could go as far as to say this. Our ability to draw near to God and to hold fast to our hope in Christ 
is directly related to our desire to incite Christ-like love in one another in the context of the local church. That's a pretty full statement, but we're going to unpack that in the next 35 minutes or so. Now here's a question you really need to ask yourself. Have you ever thought about how important the family of God, this family of God is to your spiritual survival in this world and your final eternal destiny? Have you ever thought about that? Or is it just this is where I come to worship? After all, what do we do? We, we sing a little bit. We pray a little bit. We try to stay awake through a sermon. <laughs> and in an hour and a half or so, we go home. What's this all about? But even if we understand the biblical reality of, of how each of these components of a worship service comes together and is supposed to benefit us, for most of us, we come to church, I think, pretty much with a user mentality. We come with the idea of drinking in and saying, well, how is this going to affect me for this coming week? And that misses the very point that Hebrews 10, 24 is driving at for us here. And what is that point? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, in those first words of that, of that sentence, there's just so much to, to drink in, to understand, so that we get an idea of the, the big picture where the preacher's taking us. The word consider, as you can imagine, means to actually set our minds on something, to fix our attention, to carefully work and discuss through an issue. But it's also in the present tense. It's, it's not something that happens once in a blue moon. The emphasis here is that this is an ongoing, continual reality. So whenever we come together, our attention is always supposed to be how do we stir up love and good works. That's the force of the word. It also, the, the word stir up here, actually comes from a word to mean to sharpen. And you can understand in the context, it's saying we need to be able to open up each other's minds to what God has called us to do. It, we need to incite one another to action, to, to, to love. But those words or that verb, to stir up, actually has a force behind it that talks about a sudden, abrupt, even forceful reality. So imagine yourself, you're sitting in a car, you're in the passenger seat, it's been two or three hours, and the person beside you is now starting to get a little sleepy. <laughs> and you see them starting to go over that line, and they keep catching themselves, but all of a sudden, once, as they start to go over that line, are you going to tap them on the shoulder? No, you're going to yell, you're going to grab them, and that's the intention behind this word to stir up. Sometimes there needs to be force. We need to grab their attention. We are to stir one another up to love and good works. What verse 24 is telling us is that our ongoing preoccupation as we come to church, as we assemble as the family of God, is to set our focus on others around us, to serve them, to stir up 
this love and good works. To be more specific, how, how do we do that? Well, when we come together, whenever we're meeting with people, <coughs> we, we ask ourselves, where are they in their life right now? What spiritual challenges are they dealing with? And so moment to moment, day to day, what are the circumstances that they find themselves in? In work? In their family? In, in their church? And you hear them, you're interacting with them. Do you catch the nuance of their words? Is there a vigor in their language? Or has it just kind of, their, their love for God, it's just not there. Where's their obedience? Where are they struggling? What are their wants? What are their needs? What are their expectations? What are their temptations in life? And once we understand all of these things, then we push them towards Christ. We push them to His sufficiency, His grace, and His love. Pushing them in such a manner as to incite good works and love for what He has already done in and through Christ. Well, we do that through encouragement, right? Well, again, if this word stir up actually does have a connotation at times of, of being brusque or forceful, then there are times when we need to exhort people strongly. We need to admonish them. If you continue down this pathway, there's going to be some serious trials. Look at Christ. Sometimes we need to rebuke them. Now, just before I came to CGC, I had started working with a, a gentleman in the association to deal with some of the, the issues that I had been struggling through and my family as well. You know, having to leave a church and uh, the trials that were with it, I didn't want to come back and be a pastor ever again. I said, just no way. <laughs> and, and in our discussion, he, he actually asked me one day, he said, would you consider being a pastor? You've got all this experience and training and nothing's disqualified you. And I guess whatever I said, behind the words, there was a connotation that said, I'm not going back to those people. I'd rather do this. Give me the freedom to, to do something else. He didn't tap me on the shoulder <laughs> and say, you need to think straight. His rebuke was harsh. It wasn't long, but here was a man that I had been walking with, and he had been mentoring and helping me through all of these issues that I had been struggling with. He never before then had a bad word to say about anybody. He was encouraging. He was always saying, well, you know, if there's a, a challenge or there's a problem, then what is the good that comes out of that? How do you move forward? There was always a glass half full. But that morning, behind my words, he heard something that indicated that I would not desire to go back to be a pastor because of the people of God. And he rebuked me. And it was exactly what I needed. It was exactly what I needed to not only put away my sin to, to confess that, but to stir up a desire and an understanding that I do need to step forward and I do need to lead. But the same goes with, with somebody who's at work and wanting to get ahead and stretching the truth. 
sometimes we need to be forceful. The same goes for a student who you, you know is playing in their mind. You know, if I cheat a little bit, I'm at home doing all of this education. I take, a, I take an exam virally. I can have some, ex- uh, some cheat uh, notes here. We need to be a little more forceful than simply the tap on the shoulder. Sometimes we need to incite love and good works in others by confronting the wrong attitudes and actions. At times, we need to be forceful to get them back on the straight and narrow. But it's to stir up love. It's to stir up good works, not simply as rebuke. So we, at times, will have to do that. But most of the time, we can do it through encouragement, right? We talk to them. We listen to them. We, we help them weed things through. And here are some very specific things that we do or should be doing to build up love and good works. Prayer. Pray specifically for the person, for the family, for the circumstances, but out of that, ask for benefits of righteousness, fruit of righteousness, to come to reality in their life. We incite all of these things, love and good works, by the way we live, our example of committing to Christ, uh, of going through challenging situations and not swaying to the left or to the right, but keeping steadfast on what we know is sure even when it is killing us. Uh, our hearts are saddened. We have to give up a job. We also are to encourage and to incite through Scripture, the Word of God, which is why it's so important to regularly read the Word of God, commit parts of it to our memory so that it can be used as a word of encouragement continually. This is the love of God. Despite what you're feeling at this moment, here is the grace of God. Step forward, dear brother and sister. Okay, so so what is this love that we're to incite in one another? Well, it's a love that is unconditional, a love that is self-effacing, a love that is sacrificial. This is agape love. A love that's not motivated by superficial appearances. It's not motivated by emotion or sentimentality, although we can have an attachment to something, but it's not motivated by that. It's not motivated by how much someone deserves our attention or doesn't. Agape love chooses to love, and it manifests that choice in acts of selfless servanthood. It's important to grasp. We're called to incite love. It's a love that's given at a personal cost. It costs us something to do this. It's a love that emulates God's love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that says, you know, for your sake, I'm going to put aside my rights, my privileges, my time, my resources, everything else, and focus on you to build you up in your love. But, and to build it up in a real and tangible way. This is the kind of love which is grounded 
in God's love for us. It's a love that is manifested and empowered through grace. This is not something we can do in and of ourselves. And it manifests itself in loving actions to others. It's a love and good works that is real, it's genuine, it's sincere, but it also accomplishes something concrete, something real, something beneficial in the life of someone else. So it could be in the community, it could be somewhere in the church, but it actually is for the spiritual benefit of someone else. So this is our task, to continually consider how to stir up Christ-like love in one another. And it's all done in the context of what? one another. The Bible presumes that we are going to assemble. Uh, part of the original definition of ecclesia or church is those who are called out. As God's elect, we are called out of the world, but we come together and we assemble. The, the, church, the, the Bible presumes that. But the context here also is that the only way we can actually interact with each other, the only way we can ever love and encourage and incite this is if we're in close proximity, right? We have to be rubbing shoulders. And that's why verse 25 actually becomes even more explicit, saying, do not neglect the coming together, as some have done. You know, if you're not coming to the assembly, the family of God, you're missing your God-given right or responsibility to incite love and good works in others. Don't be like those others who are neglecting that. Now, there is a, a really, really important application to grasp here. It comes from the larger context of, of chapter 10. Because of Christ's sacrifice for us, once for all, we have the full assurance that our sins are forgiven, right? How are we to respond to that? Verse 22, we are to draw near to God with a true heart. Verse 23, we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Verse 24, we are to consider how to stir up love and good works. There are three considerations that are upon us that are spiritual imperatives. They're ours to enact if we truly have faith in Christ. Draw near to God. It deals with the heart. Hold fast our confession. It, it talks about our speaking the truth in the gospel. Stirring up love and, uh, and, and, and good works speaks of our conduct. We are to be moving others to Christ-likeness. And this is what we need to get here. The emphasis is not on how each of us come to church and figure out for ourselves how to better love and serve others. The emphasis is how to consider how to stimulate others to love and good works. It's not on me coming and getting, it's on me coming and giving. Totally different than we would like to think. The, the aim of our lives is not just loving and doing good deeds, but to stir up in others love and good works to be agents of righteousness and holiness in the lives of our brothers and sisters as we're here this morning. Have you ever thought about that? To be agents of righteousness in their spiritual growth. That's what you're here for this morning. 
Now, A.B. Simpson, a spiritual giant and the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, has said this. It would seem to be that the great work of the Holy Spirit, what he has for his disciples today, is not so much the conversion of sinners, although this mustn't be forgotten. It is rather the purifying and preparing of the Lord's own to meet him. He's not saying evangelism isn't important. But he's saying, as we come together, we are called, first and foremost, we are accountable for the spiritual growth of one another. And our task is to incite love and good works. I don't know about you, that, that kind of hits me. Because <laughs> we put evangelism on the forefront of everything. And it's part of discipleship. But think of discipleship as this as well. Helping others grow in Christ-likeness. And as we come together, we know Christ is coming again. Now, we don't know when one of us may be called to glory or he comes again. And as we assemble, we are to consider how to prod, to poke, to push unto Christ-likeness. Whenever we gather as the family of God, as believers, our desire is not to focus on self, but on anything and everything that stirs up Christ-likeness in the person who's sitting beside you. So just quickly take a look around you. <laughs> you may not know that person very well. But as we come this morning, that is your task. That is your holy responsibility. And we do that as agents of righteousness, agents of grace, in the hands of God. So, how are we to draw near to God with a true heart, verse 22? How are we to hold fast to our confession, in verse 23, or our hope, in verse 23? By spurring each other, whenever we assemble, to Christ-like love, of sacrificial love and servanthood. The aim of the church, the aim of us as we come here this morning, at least on a horizontal plane, there's this reality in that, that we are glorifying God and He, he receives all the, the glory in the long run. But on this horizontal plane, how we manage our services, how we participate in our services, how we do CE, how we do fellowships, how we do worship, how we do small group, everything must have as its aim how to spur the person beside you across the row to love and good works. Now, it comes down to the simplest of little things. <laughs> Think about how we sang this morning. I, I know our desire is to sing as an expression of worship, and it is. But to put that in context, how we sing, it doesn't matter if it's on key, it doesn't matter if the words are wrong. How we sing by faith has a direct influence on the person beside you, on each and every person in this congregation. It is an act of discipleship to proclaim, Jesus is my Lord, to sing it heartily, even when your heart is aching. And that's what we're called to do. This is not about me, well, I don't quite feel in the mood of singing this morning, so I'm just going to mumble the words. This is about saying, there are others around me need to hear that even in the, the trials of my marriage, 
Even as my kids rebel, I give glory to God. And I want them to see that. I want them to revel in my faith, my assurance in Christ. So the purpose of coming together is not to get, but to give. It also means that this koinonia or this deep sense of spiritual fellowship that that we all long for doesn't just happen simply because I show up at church regularly. It's not there simply because I've committed myself to a small group. True spiritual fellowship and community arise out of a shared desire to show love and servanthood to one another. And I would add this. The degree to which we experience fellowship, to we experience koinonia, is in direct relationship to how we give of ourselves in those community assemblies. And that brings out an ugly truth. (laughs) We probably need to deal with that if we're struggling to experience fellowship, if we're struggling to experience koinonia, it probably has more to do with what I'm not doing in this fellowship than what others are not doing. That I'm not giving of myself sacrificially to them. Remember, this love, this agape love, it it is something that costs us. It's willingly sacrificing our needs, our wants, our desires for the sake of others around us. But all too often, our sense of a lack of community, a lack of koinonia, a lack of fellowship, stems because we don't feel our needs or wants being met. But that's just the opposite of what Scripture tells us. But you know what? There's another ugly truth we probably have to deal with. We can only stir up others or incite love and good works in others to the degree that we are experiencing God ourselves. We can only give of ourselves to the degree that we actually know Christ, to to we are resting in Him, to we are rejoicing in Him despite our own challenges. So this brings it right down to our individual spiritual lives. How are you walking with God? And it's out of that joy, out of that experience of, of worship on an everyday basis flows the insight, flows the encouragement, flows the the, the means by which to prod and to poke others to Christ. Because as we find it in our daily lives, in all of these challenges, it just exudes from us. God is good. Despite whatever I may be feeling or experiencing, God is good. So one of the realities I personally think coming out of COVID is We've come to understand as an evangelical church as a whole, like all the churches in North America, not just CGC, I'm saying, we're probably not as spiritually strong as we thought we were. We're not probably as spiritually vibrant as we should be. You know, we coasted for a long time with all of this process of church and all of the functions and all of the ministries, and yet somehow we missed the point that we are to give of ourselves and not simply look to get. 
Scripture here this morning reminds us that our ability to draw near unto God with a pure heart is directly related to our desire and our earnestness to actually say, I desire to incite love in someone else. I desire to incite someone else to good works. So my ability to draw unto God, my ability to hold strong to my hope in Jesus Christ, it's all connected to that purpose that we're given to incite love and good works. Our spiritual survival as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, whether we're going to flourish or whether we're going to wither, is dependent on how seriously we take this as a church. How seriously we take the task to love sacrificial, sacrificially and serve others selflessly. The truth is, every one of us needs that encouragement, myself included. We need to be prodded. We need to be poked. We need to be exhorted and rebuked that God is good. Look what He has done. And He has ordained that local family of faith, the church, as the means of doing that. So, while we can listen to preachers online watch other worship services, then, you know, we can gain some spiritual truth and help in that. We must never come to the point of thinking that they can replace local, in-person gathering of God's people. Why? Because it's in the coming together of God's people as we rub shoulders. This is where preaching becomes an event where the Word of God breaks forth and, and it shatters our illusions and our false perceptions of, of truth. And, and it says, here is what this means for your life. It's where we come and, and prayer becomes a, an earnest exhortation for the spiritual needs of those around us. It's where singing unites our hearts as one in worship to our Heavenly Father. It, it's one family together. In all these ways, things and in many more, this is how we build up one another as we assemble as the family of God. It's also just important to think that as advanced as technology is or is becoming, and as functional as it has been, it, it's really allowed us again to, to offer services when, you know, a generation ago, we would have been shut down. It would have been impossible to do anything. We had a semblance of fellowship, of teaching, of, of all of these things going on. <clears throat> but here's the reality. We must never fall into the, uh, the understanding that these things could supplant, again, our true gathering together physically as one. Can God use these things in times of pandemics and trials? Yes. But that's not God's best for us. And I hope that we can sense that there is something deeper as we come together. Something more visceral. There, there's something spiritually deeper in edification and even glorification unto our Heavenly Father. As we come in person, there is the work of the Spirit amongst us, says the family. Now, some of you may, thinking, may be thinking, okay, well, I kind of get what you're talking about. But why is this important? Why is this urgent? Why do we need to think about it now? 
Well, in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, the preacher goes on and warns us not to grow weary and not to grow faint-hearted in our spiritual battle, but to look to Christ. So the main concern isn't that we know we're sinners, but that we don't fully understand the power of sin that is still at work in us. Oh, we're no longer slaves to sin. Our passions, our wills, our, our disposition are freed now from the bondage of sin. Sin, however, has not been eradicated. It's still living and well in me. It still holds sway over so much of what I think and so much of what I do. And here's the thing. It's one desire is to lead us into greater ungodliness. No matter how hard we try, we will never be rid of sin in this life. So we must wage a war of scorched earth against sin in our life because its one desire is to consume us. The challenge, however, is that waging a war against an enemy who never sleeps, who never eats, and whose sole occupation is to take us down, that's spiritually exhausting. At some point, we're going to let our guard down. At some point, we're going to succumb to the allure of sin, and we're going to start doing things that we know are ungodly. At some point, we're simply going to grow tired of fighting, like being in a wrestling match, and you just don't have any more energy. I was thinking about this example this morning, and I wasn't for sure I was going to use it, but let's go. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to watch my uh, wrestling with my grandfather, and he loved it. And uh, it, it, the idea is always to get submission, right? But you see that in MMA as, as well today. You know, there's all the kicks and all the fighting, but it's people like Ronda Rousey who is looking for that one arm hold, uh, uh, arm bar hold. And in that, and, and you can see the two are wrestling, seconds go by, and yet every fiber is wrestling, and, and she's just moving that arm inch by inch, and gets it locked in place, and then the person has to tap out. That's, that's the match of wrestling we need to think about ourselves in with sin. Its desire is to consume us, and it's exhausting. We can't do it about ourselves. But I don't think very many of us are using all the, the God-given tools that are at our disposal. And that's where the church comes in. That's why it's so important to have the family of God. Because we are to be encouraging and exhorting one another all the time to love, Christ-like love, and good works. Good works and love because He has already loved us. He has already died for us. And we've received Him as our Lord and Savior. The challenge here is that if we don't understand the power of sin, or if we fail to grasp the power of sin in our lives, we're fools and we've already lost the battle. And if we neglect the means of grace that God has given together, given to us as the coming together of the church family, we will not thrive spiritually in this life. We are here together. God has not called us home because we are to be one family 
encouraging, striving each other on to perseverance unto the very end. And here's the reality. Not only do we have sin, we have a world that is continually trying to mold us into its own understanding, its own philosophies, its, its own wants and decisions and standards. We know that there's evil in the world. And we know Satan prowls. And he has his own power and his own purposes. All this highlights the importance of why, as God's people, we need to get this right. We need to come physically together. We can't continually come unto God with a, a heart that's pure. We cannot hold fast to our profession by ourselves without the help of the family of God, poking and prodding us to love and to good works. That's why verse 25 says, do not forsake the coming together of each other. Don't forsake that assembly as has been the habit of some. Now, we're not told the exact situation but it seems that there were some people who thought that they didn't need to come together as the family of God. Much like today, there are people who don't think that they need to attend a physical church. Over the past three years, I don't know about you, I, I've heard this verse, verse 25, many, many times by people who were zealous evangelicals, brothers and sisters in Christ, but they use it as a proof text to push back against pandemic restrictions, whether it's simply limiting our numbers or, or saying you have to shut your doors, you can't get together. This is a text that they would go to and say, here, do not forsake, we must rebel against the, the government. You know what, I, as I was thinking about this yesterday and I was writing it, I was thinking their arguments are always based around freedom of assembly. I never heard one of them say, we must open our doors because I need to incite my brother and sister to Christ's love. I need to incite them to good works. It's always around religious liberties. Their, their desire is to incite resistance and confrontation, not to incite Christ-likeness. The context of, and the admonition in here in, in chapter 10 of Hebrews is, is not the overreaching arm of government into the religious lives of people, but the fact that some of those people who called themselves Christians decided that they didn't need to go to church and, and that it became a regular habit for them, something that they decided going back again and again, no, I'm just not doing that. Now, we, we can say that the early church had, let's say, an excuse. We don't have persecution. They did. As they went out, they were being watched. They were being marked. Some of them were dying. But a point for them was that they needed the family of God. Despite all of these things, they could only find strength as they were in the church, as they were in the assembly. It wasn't that they simply couldn't get themselves out of bed in the morning because they didn't quite feel right or it was too nice and warm. They didn't want to get the kids ready. It wasn't simply that they had to go to work. So yeah, you had to miss a church a day at church. It wasn't simply temporary restrictions that were on all of a society 
because of a pandemic. They had real reasons. And yet, even then, Scripture says, don't be like them. When, they, when the restrictions ended, they decided not to go back anyways. So a, a forced absence, even under a pandemic situation, is one thing. And, and it should cause us affliction. We should be... We should be experiencing anxiety, as I know some of us have. We haven't had baptisms. We haven't had the Lord's Supper. That should stress us. Yes. But that's gone. And if we continue not to come to church, not to assemble, we need to be cautious that we're not falling into the habit of saying church is not important that I don't need to participate with other brothers and sisters, that it's me going, I can get that off the TV. Here's the thing, even if we could argue that this text can be applied to the government in the situation that we've had in the last couple of years and ignore the very words where it says, the habit of some, we'd have to argue that the government's intention was to target the church and afflict undue hardship on us to shut us down. Only then would the argument start making sense. But that wasn't the case, was it? The truth was, it, we've been in a pandemic. And for the sake of public health, restrictions have been set, or were set, on all public gatherings. And again, we've experienced the anxiety of not being able to go to church, of not being able to take communion, of not being back. I, I'm so thankful for everyone who waited two years to be baptized last week. Praise the Lord. But you know what? We're coming out. It was not the intention to focus on the church. In terms of COVID, the returning of in-person services, there may need to be, uh, uh, there still may need to be some legitimate reasons why people can't start coming again. Frontline workers who, you know, they, they don't want to be infected and come. There may be people who have serious health issues underlying. There may be some older people who are more precarious, and, and this would be a serious concern for them. But if we don't fall into those categories, you need to be careful that you're not slipping into the habit of forsaking coming to the church and going to fellowship, of thinking that in-person services are not necessary for my spiritual life. For us this morning, I, I think the most important words are actually that last phrase. <coughs> it says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, again, we've grown accustomed to life not being in person on, on so many different levels. Technology has given us a way to participate minimally and, and feel like we're part of a group in so many things, but doing it from a distance. And some may say, well, the church needs to take advantage of, of this situation, of all the technology. Let's become viral. Be more readily consumable for everybody. You know, I'm waiting. It's probably not too far off when some young pastor is going to say, here is a new way of doing church. A new church model is before us. The digital church. Just connect whenever you want to. 
Whenever you, wherever you are, you need some counseling? Let's Zoom. We'll, we'll connect you with somebody. Just click, and we're there. And why not? We have remote work situations. Distance education. Why not distant church? What we need to understand is that while technology may allow us to live remotely more easily, it can never replace in-person meeting of the family of God. Because God has ordained a holy purpose for it. As we come together, our desire is to constantly incite one another to a self-sacrificing love typified by servanthood. Not what I'm getting out of this, but how I can incite others. Instead of diminishing our need of actually coming together. Verse 25, think of it this way. Verse 25 actually tells us that the, the need gets stronger. As we see the day of the Lord, as we see the day when Christ's return getting closer, our need for one another to incite love, to incite good works, becomes even more important than before. It becomes more important for our spiritual livelihood if we are to thrive in this world. Why? Well, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without control, self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its why is it important that we not neglect the coming together of the local family of God all the more as we see the day of the Lord coming? It's because things are going to get graver and more serious for us as a church. It, it, it says that your spiritual life is in more jeopardy the closer that the Lord's day comes. As that day nears, our carelessness and our lack of vigilance over sin in our body will give opportunity for many of us to fall away and to be disqualified. As the day of the Lord comes closer, our laziness or, or lack of desire to do good works will wither away. And if that purpose is to incite others, it will directly affect the rest of the body of Christ. If the coming together of the saints is a means to incite love and good works so that we can continue to draw unto God with a pure heart, that we can continue to hold fast to our hope, how much more so as the days get darker, closer to the coming of Christ. We need more assurance to be provoked more. We need to wage war on sin even more on ourselves so that we do not lose our confession and find ourselves disqualified. We need to take even more seriously our responsibility to incite love, a Christ-like love and servanthood in others. The closer the day of the Lord gets, the more intense 
the spiritual battle will be. And the more likely we will grow weary of that battle. God has appointed the church as a means for our sanctification to prod us to Christ-likeness. And the degree to which we, we earnestly understand and take this as our responsibility, our holy calling to love and serve others, is the degree to which uh, we love and embrace that calling will have a lasting effect on everyone in this congregation. Are we earnest in our desire to do that? Is it about you as you come? Or is it about others? Again, there are many reasons why some may not come to church. A few of them are legitimate, but th there are many that are not legitimate. There are are some who are probably angry at leaders in small groups or at PCT or, or ECB who, who said something and they just didn't like what was said. There's going to be issues of pride, fear of persecution. There's going to be sin. There's just going to be spiritual laziness. Making it a habit to neglect the meeting together of God's people indicates that there is a spiritual sickness at work in us. And we should take it seriously. Because if we are to endure till the Lord comes or he calls us home, we need one another. We need the local family of God because it is God's purpose and means to incite love and good works amongst us. Now, how important is coming to church? Well, I came across a, a, a very short but very, very poignant um, story. It's, it's a story, but it ha really happened, and it's recorded um, in, in a couple texts. Just listen to this for a second. A minister was concerned about the absence of a man who had normally attended services. After a few weeks, he decided to visit him. When the pastor arrived at the man's house, he found him all alone, sitting in front of a fireplace. The minister pulled up a chair and sat next to him. But after his initial greeting, he said nothing else. The two sat in silence for a few minutes while the minister stared at the flame in the fireplace. Then he took the tongs and carefully picked up one of the burning embers from the flames and placed it on the hearth. He sat back in his chair, still silent. His host watched in quiet reflection as the ember flickered and faded. Before long, it was cold and dead. The minister glanced at his watch and said he had to leave. But first he picked up the cold ember and placed it back in the fire. Immediately it began to glow again and the light and the warmth of the burning coals around it. As the minister rose to leave, the host stood up, shook his hand, said thank you for the sermon preacher. I'll see you next Sunday. And if, if you don't remember much about that story, when you go camping this year, Take an ember out of the fire and watch how quickly it will actually lose its flame. And then put it back in. Even after an hour, it, the burning of the other ember, embers brings it back to life. That's what the family of God is to do. John Wesley once said, There is nothing more unchristian than a, a solitary Christian. 
I would add to that, is that there is nothing more unsettling for me as a pastor than to have someone say, I'm a Christian, but say, I don't need to go to church. Let us pray.